There is overwhelming grace for someone who first comes to Jesus to find forgiveness for sin, right? But what happens when a believer realizes they can't ever stop sinning this side of heaven? Do we lose God's favor? Is the grace now gone? Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Today is part two of our series called How to Keep Going. John is walking us through many teachings that have been misused to keep believers caught in a destructive cycle of thinking. But he has some breakthrough gospel encouragement to assure you in this struggle. Let's listen now to his message called Christ Died for the Sins of Christians, too. Here's part one. And this is what the Christian life kind of feels like. Two steps forward, three steps back, right? This is often how the Christian life feels. The Christian experience in the last days, in the last days in the Bible is simply the time between Christ's physical ascension and his second coming, which is now. We find ourselves living in the last days. This time that we find ourselves living in, this in-between time, uh, is always going to be characterized by a struggle with ongoing sin. There's never going to come a moment in your life before Jesus returns or you die that you will stop sinning as a believer. We shouldn't expect life east of Eden to be easy, right? Uh, we, we hear this expression now because of the, the COVID experiences that we've been going through since last March or February or I think even last January. But they're like, well, this is the new normal. Let me explain something to you. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, there's been no new normal. This isn't normal. Life east of Eden, life, what I'm, when I say east of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they broke God's covenant of works in the garden and were thrust out of the garden temple of God, Eden, it says that they were cast out east of Eden. Life east of Eden is not going to be normal till Jesus returns. And so we shouldn't expect life east of Eden to be easy. Now, there are times throughout our Christian walk that we experience the thrill of victory, right? But there are also times that we experience the agony of defeat. And it's simply because this ongoing struggle with sin in our lives as believers is never going to stop till Jesus returns or till we die. There are times in our lives when we find ourselves walking in darkness. That doesn't mean that we're walking in sin. We're just we're walking in a time of what the, the old Puritans, the nonconformists or the conformist English Reformed theologians, where they would talk about where you go through periods in your life where you're just walking in a way that you just don't sense God's presence, his favor. You don't have joy, and you're just overcome with this, this ongoing nagging reality of your sin and your failure. And so when we find ourselves walking in darkness and we don't see any light of our own, the question is this, is this what we're answering? How do you keep going? How do you keep going when you're walking in darkness and you don't see any light of your own, right? 
So I'm giving you five insights on how to keep going when you're walking in darkness, when things are very difficult. Here's the first is this, is you have to have a realistic view of the Christian life, this side of the new heavens and new earth. There's no better description of the realistic view of the Christian life than Romans chapter 7. This is what we looked at last week where Paul, uh, he honestly acknowledges in Romans chapter 7 his daily struggle with his ongoing sin. He says, for I find the principle that evil is present in me and the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He says, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And so here you have Paul being real, this realistic assessment of his life as a justified believer. He says, at best, I am simultaneously justified yet sinful. I am united to Christ. I have received justification, Romans 3 to 5. I have received sanctification, Romans 6 through 8. I'm united to Christ. I've died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. I've been granted this new life in Christ. I'm alive in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit and the hope of eternal glory. And yet, every day I find this principle within me waging war uh, against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. And I keep sinning. This is the realistic view of the Christian life that we must possess if we're going to keep going on. Because if you don't have this realistic perspective and you think that somehow, some way, eventually, I'm going to get to this point in my life where I'm going to achieve this level of overcoming all sin, this perfectionist teaching, you're just going to become disillusioned and give up. But second insight is this, is you have to consider the mixed nature of the lives of believers throughout redemptive history. This will be one of the infamous things that I will always have to carry with me that I said, we're going we're gonna to watch the Jerry Springer show last Sunday. And uh, I've received a lot of feedback about that. It was all good. Um, but we saw the Jerry Springer show last week with believers in scripture, right? There are no superheroes in scripture, What do we find in Scripture? They're only, throughout all of Scripture, believing sinners. People who are at one one in the same time, just and yet sinful. And these four um, examples of believers that we looked at that testifies to this mixed nature of the Christian life, this reality of being simultaneously justified yet sinful was Noah, uh, Abraham, David and Peter. And what we learn from these four believers, from their examples, is this, is that grace abounds to Christians who sin. All right, so that brings us to the third insight that I want you to look at. If you're going to keep going, if you're going to keep going in this Christian life and not be overwhelmed by the, by the reality of sin that you see in your life, If you're going to keep going, here's what you have to understand. Here's a third insight. Grace abounds to Christians who sin. You have to get that. 
There's a book that um, I, I highly encourage you to pick up and to read called Christ the Lord, the Reformation in Lordship Salvation. It is must reading for your life. But there's a chapter that uh, the Lutheran theologian Rod Rosenblatt wrote that's entitled, Christ Died for the Sins of Christians Too. This title that he has in this chapter of this book is simply another way of saying grace abounds to Christians who sin. All right, so listen to what he writes in his chapter. He says, the most important thing to remember is that the death of Christ was in fact a death even for Christian failure. Christ's death saves even Christians from sin. And then he quotes this old hymn, and he says, there's always room at the cross for unbelievers, it seems. He says, but what we ought to be telling people is that there is room there for Christians, too. I want to talk to you just uh, briefly this morning about my own personal journey in the Christian life. For the first 30 years of my Christian life, I was never taught this simple yet life-changing truth, which is this. Christ died for the sins of Christians, too. I was never taught that grace abounds for Christians who sin. No one ever told me this simple but liberating truth that the death of Christ was a death for Christian failure. That Christ's death saves even Christians from sin. I was never taught that. Instead of being taught this wonderful truth for Christians, uh, this is what I was steeped in. I was steeped in a theology of navel-gazing, doubt, a theology of doubt, a theology of fear, a theology of despair. You see, I was taught a confusion. I don't want to get in the weeds with this. I'll try to keep it simple. But I was taught a confusion of faith with obedience or a confusion of faith and repentance which is, a, which is a terrible error because when you confuse faith with repentance and faith with obedience, you destroy the believer's assurance. And that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, here are some examples of what I was taught. Disobedience is unbelief. I was taught that. Disobedience is unbelief. That's confusing faith and obedience together. I was taught this, if disobedience and rebellion continue unabated, there's reason to doubt the reality of a person's faith. Now, I want to test that statement by comparing it to Paul's realistic confession that we just read in Romans chapter 7 of his inability to continue unabated in his obedience to God's law. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 19. He says, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. He says, for what I am practicing, what I will, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. He says, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Listen to verse 19. He says, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. 
If we take this statement, if disobedience and rebellion continue unabated, there's reason to doubt the reality of a person's faith. If we take that statement, which confuses faith and obedience, and we apply it to the Apostle Paul's confession of Romans 7, we would have to conclude that the reality of Paul's faith is to be in question because disobedience to God's law is continual in his life. You see, what happens is when faith is confused with repentance, when faith is confused with obedience, believers conclude, well, I guess I'm not a Christian because I find myself committing the same sins repeatedly. This was the conclusion that I finally came to as I examined my life. When I was steeped in this theology of navel-gazing, a theology of doubt and despair, this is how the book of 1 John was taught to me. The book of 1 John was composed of a series of tests. And the tests were given, and this is the wrong way to understand 1 John. I'm going to teach you how I was taught it, then I'm going to teach you how to understand it. The, the, the book of 1 John was set forth as a series of tests by which you could measure your life to see if you possess genuine saving faith, to see if you are truly submitted to the lordship of Christ. Is Jesus Lord of your life or not? And so here's what would happen. Every time I would take the test of faith, all right, I would get to the obedience test, which was set forth, from, which was taken from 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, the obedience test. And invariably, every time I got to this point in the test, I would fail. Because I would take the test, and I would go, well, this is what John says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. If you have obedience to his commandments, we know that we're in him. We know that we're saved. We have assurance of our salvation. And I would measure my obedience by the test and go, well, what was me? I, I failed today and I disobeyed today. I didn't pass this test. And so when I would take the test of 1 John, I could never get past this test because I could never, ever pass it. See, I was thinking, I was like, well, but I love God's law. I want to obey God's law. But every time I take the obedience test, I see the undeniable reality that I have I have ongoing disobedience in my life. And so when I would sin, I was fully aware of failing the obedience test. It would work out like this. I had just gotten married to Catherine, and she was 19 at the time, and I was 23. Um, and we were out in California. We were going to school, being steeped in this theology of navel-gazing and despair and doubt, and so this was my continual daily diet. And so every time as a young married couple, we would get into an argument and really blow it. And I know you're all looking at me. You've never argued with your spouse before. You've never had a knockdown drag out, right? Um, if we were to have an argument, I would just go into a shell for two or three weeks at a time and just retreat into despair and doubt and navel-gazing and thinking, I don't think God loves me because look at me. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. 
because I, I'm not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. I'm disobeying and I'm, I my, look at my life and look at me and I'm always turned inward looking at me. You see, the apostle Newton wrote the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, to, to assure believers of their salvation. He said, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the book of 1 John was written to give believers assurance, comfort, rest, that they're indeed uh, uh, having fellowship with the Father, First John chapter 1, the opening prologue of the first four verses. Having fellowship with God is just a synonym for means you're saved. You have salvation. And here is the ironic thing is that due to the faulty theology of despair and doubt and navel-gazing that I was being steeped in, John's letter was being used to undermine the very purpose for which it was written. So listen, instead of threatening believers with, who sin with this, quote, if disobedience and rebellion continue unabated, there's reason to doubt the reality of a person's faith. Instead of telling sinning believers that, it's far better and correct to say something like this to a believer who is sinning. If there's no struggle against this disobedience and rebellion in your life, then there is a reason to doubt the reality of a person's faith. Let me say that again. If there is no struggle, if there is no war raging in your life, in your heart, against the disobedience and rebellion, then there's reason to doubt the reality of a person's faith. You see, this brings us back to what I said last week about believers being simultaneously justified yet sinful. We could apply this faulty test to Noah. Remember what he did? We don't have to repeat it. It was bad. We could apply this to Abraham. We could apply this to King David. We could apply this to Peter. We could apply this to the Apostle Paul himself, who in Romans 7 says, the, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the, the things I don't want to do, the things I hate, I keep doing. Wretched man that I am. You see, a Christian, listen carefully, is not one who continues in unabated obedience to God's law and continual, perpetual, perfect obedience to God's law all the time. That's not who a Christian is. A Christian, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, which summarizes the teaching of Scripture wonderfully, says this, is that a Christian is one who has only a small beginning of obedience. Listen to question 114 after it has just uh, exposited the Ten Commandments for believers. Can those, can those who are converted to God keep these commandments, the Ten Commandments, perfectly? And here's the answer, no. It says, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. Those who are truly born again love all of God's law and with true and earnest purpose, want to keep it, yet that beginning obedience is very small in this life. But it's there. 
And so the evidence, the, the evidence of the new birth of genuine faith is not sinless perfection. The evidence of, of possessing genuine saving faith, of truly being submitted to Jesus as Savior and Lord, is not achieving a level of victorious Christian living at some point where you begin to live without sin. The evidence of the new birth is whether there is a war raging in your life right now. Listen again to the realism of the Apostle Paul's confession when he, as a justified believer, is lamenting his, his, his inability as a justified, sanctified believer to keep God's law perfectly in his life as a Christian. He says, I joyfully, did you hear that? I joyfully concur with the law of God in, my, in the inner man. He says, but I see a different law waging I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You see, Paul tells us here very clearly that a Christian is not one who ceases sinning. Listen to this dual tension in the Christian life. Who is a Christian? What is a Christian? What is the Christian experience in this life? A Christian is a person who's been brought to life by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ by grace through faith alone, and therefore, listen, like the Apostle Paul, they say, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. A Christian is a, is a, is a man or a woman who says, I love God's law. I love it with all my heart. While at the exact same time laments his or her inability to constantly obey what they truly love. And Paul says, I am not practicing what I would like to do, what I love. He says, but I'm doing the very thing I hate, which is disobeying God's law, even as a justified believer. And so it is this, it is the believing sinner's inability to obey God's law perfectly, which we love in this life that creates the war within. This is where this tension comes from. A Christian who possesses genuine saving faith isn't carefree, isn't casual, isn't tolerant with their sin. A Christian is one who hates their sin and laments over it. Listen to what it sounds like. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That is the true realistic experience of every born-again believer. And then listen, when a believer confesses that, they don't stay there because they immediately turn outside of themselves and look to faith in Christ alone like the apostle Paul did. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the agony of defeat and the thrill of victory in one breath. But listen, before finally being taught that Christ died for the Christians, sins of Christians too, that grace abounds to Christians who sin, no one ever answered Paul's question for me in Romans 7. I was just left with Paul's question, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Nobody ever answered that question for me. And I was just left navel-gazing with my 
bad performance in my life in the test of faith from 1 John. And so I was left looking at my failure to conform perfectly to God's law and no one ever pointing me outside of myself to Christ. I was just pointing back to the test of faith. I was pointing back to my life as these measuring rods for determining if I possess genuine saving faith. And so what happened with me is I was trapped in this vicious, soul-killing cycle of sin, tests, doubt. Sin, tests, doubt. And I was like a hamster on the little hamster wheel, running so hard, trying so hard. Sin, fall out, test it. Why did I fall out? Because you disobeyed. More doubt. Get back on the hamster wheel, fall off, test it doubt, get back, and it was this vicious cycle. You see, because this vicious cycle destroyed, eventually destroyed my assurance. And so the question of assurance lies at the heart of this issue. The issue of assurance lies at the heart of keeping on going. Thanks, John. That's part one of a message called Christ Died for the Sins of Christians too." More from this mini-series, How to Keep Going, coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.